But how are you? How are things in the Bahamas? Okay, you know, we're just a little nervous because of the recent spike in COVID-19 cases, and they've all happened since the borders have opened, and it seems to be accelerating. Yeah. So, a little nervous, but I'm wondering what we can do about it. Hmm. We have to move forward, and how much lockdowns can the Bahamas sustain? So it's a difficult decision for the government. Definitely. And the address, like we were talking about earlier, the address will be on in about an hour's time. Right. <laughs> so hopefully it's not too much bad news for all of the um, people at home. Right. I'm definitely not home. <laughs> I'm yeah. in the UK right now. I'm not sure if uh, I had told you. So it's 9 p.m. here. Okay. But yeah. So how are your studies coming along? So far, so good. Uh, definitely in the report writing phase. So my okay. client, like, because we did an internship or placement, and then we have to write a ten thousand word report on that. Wow. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I thought our four thousand word essays were a lot until I got to this part. Then I was like, oh wow, okay. Yeah. Wow. That's all I can say. Yeah, but I mean, you did a PhD, so I know that's a lot. <laughs> exactly. So I commend you for that. Yeah, thank you. All right, so we have about seven people on and just to keep the time going, I don't wanna hold you beyond the address because I'm definitely interested in tuning in as well. Okay. So thank you for everyone so far who's tuned into this edition of Siren Sundays. I am Lashanti and I have with me Dr. Lester Giddens. And for anybody who didn't know, this is being powered by the Sustainable Lifestyle Group. They are the initiators of the 100,000 Tree Planting Initiative. So please definitely follow the page, like the page and plant a tree, report the tree, help us get to a more sustainable future in the Bahamas. So we are talking about the truth about conch and I've had a lot of people message me asking, oh my gosh, am I gonna watch this show and then not wanna eat conch anymore? I'm hoping you'd want to reduce <laughs> your consumption after. But like I said, I have Dr. Lester Giddens, who is a fisheries officer at the Department of Marine Resources. So Dr. Giddens, if you can just share briefly some of your um, educational background and work experience in the Queen Conch. Okay, you. certainly. Good day all. Yeah, so as was said, I'm Dr. Lester Giddens. I'm an employee of the Department of Marine Resources, where I've been since 2002. My PhD is in ecological sciences. It was attained in 2017. My dissertation focused on the spiny lobster fishery and its sustainability. I also have a master's degree in natural resource management with a specialty in, in coastal and marine resource management from the University of the West Indies. I also have a bachelor's degree in zoology from the University of the West Indies. And I went to high school in Grand Bahama at Freeport Anglican High School as it was named then. So as I said before, I have been working at the Department of Marine Resources for 18 years now. There I supervise the work of the Research and Conservation Unit. And most of my time is actually spent focusing on lobster and conch research manage and management of those species because they're so important to the Bahamas. But some of my other portfolios, I'm a part of a national spiny lobster working group. Um, I've also attended a lot of international meetings. 
for example, I've attended CITES conferences of the parties. CITES is the um, Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species of Plants and Animals that represent the Bahamas at such meetings where conch is often discussed and I vote on behalf of the Bahamas. I've also led regional intergovernmental technical working groups. I've been the chair of the CRFM, that's a Caribbean Regional Fisheries Mechanism conch and lobster working group on a few occasions as well. And more recently, um, I've been added to the Marine Stewardship Council's peer review college, which means I more or less evaluate other fisheries around the world to see if they meet the Marine Stewardship Council's sustainability standards. And so that's just a brief description. I, I guess more will come out uh, as I speak. Definitely a lot. We are truly blessed to have you on our side in the Bahamas. Definitely a true Bahamian product um, for you. us to utilize. <laughs> Sounds kind of like the Kong, right? But yeah, so the Queen Kong is definitely very iconic to the Bahamian culture. And I know that a lot of people think that they know, you know, the basics of the conch, but nobody really knows the truth about the conch, right? So if you can just briefly explain um, the life cycle of a conch, how it goes from like its egg casing to our plate, basically. Okay, certainly. Yes, there's all there's a lot being learned about the queen conch. And we know quite a bit that will enable us to um, improve our management. But in terms of the life cycle, we know that conch actually mate. They have separate sexes as well, which means there's a male and there's a female. There's um, external or internal mating through copulation. They produce egg masses that are sandy and they have anywhere between 500,000 to 700,000 eggs in those egg masses. Uh, once the eggs hatch, after about five days, they will float around for two to three weeks. Sometimes in literature, let's say up to four to five weeks, but so anywhere between two and five weeks, those larvae will float around in their um, wherever the water current takes them, that's generally where they go. So they tend, the larvae tend to settle on um, seagrass or macroalgae. And once they reach that stage, they'll bury themselves for approximately one year and they might emerge to feed. And then after that, they will return to the surface where they will uh, more or less begin to grow and develop their shell a lot more. Now, in terms of the growth of the shell, conch keep the same shell throughout their lifetime. So they don't obtain shells from other organisms. The shell actually grows until just before they reach maturity. And so uh, one of the laws we have in the Bahamas is that a conch must have a well-defined flaring lip. And that's because there are indications that once a conch has a flared lip, it's very near mature. And so that's one of our management measures we have so far. But uh, based on research that took place over the last 10 years or so, we know that once the conch has a flared lip, it's near to being mature, it isn't necessarily mature. And so that's led to some problems. We realized that you can be harvesting juvenile conch unknowingly. So it's not good enough to have to look only at the flare of the lip. It, it helps to, to, make, for, to wait for them to reach that stage. But nonetheless, they're not all mature at that stage. We know that around 15 millimeters is generally when a good proportion of them are mature and that's when you should harvest them. So 
I guess that I hope that summarizes their life cycle adequately enough. And they generally start to reproduce at around three and a half years. It's not the same throughout the Caribbean. Various scientists have researched it. Um, they found varying information, as you expect. The conditions are different. Water temperatures, diet is different. What they feed on is different. Their fishing pressure is different. So um, age of maturity is variable and size of maturity is somewhat variable as well. But generally around three and a half years of age is when conch will start to reproduce. Yeah, that's it's interesting you say that. I know throughout my conservation work, whenever and the conch question came up a lot, whenever someone would ask me about conch maturity, I'd always say, oh, five to seven years, give a conch five to seven years to mature. Um, and back to your point on the lip thickness and, and the variation in that, um, 15 millimeters is about the size of a penny, so you want it to be that thick. But I know that there's this misconception, and I realize this a lot on the family islands of the I call it the myth of the Samba conch. I don't know if you've, I'm sure you've heard about it before, yes. correct? Yes, I have. Yeah, so can you explain a little bit about why people think the Samba conch is another species of conch? Right, so there are actually two sets of conch out there, not different species. What you describe as the Samba conch, those are generally recognized as a really small conch that has a really thick shell. Then there are also some conch that get really large and they have a really thin shell as well. Now, all of those are still queen conch. They're not different species, but uh, that leads to a problem in that um, a lot of persons believe based on the size of the conch, how large it is, the length of the shell, that it, that has to be an adult, but it, just, it isn't necessarily so. The best indication of maturity in a conch is really the, the lip thickness. You really can't go based on the size. So among the samba conchs, so to speak, you have conch that are generally really small that have really thick shells as well. Those can be mature. Those have very low fecundity or the ability to, to reproduce and the like. There's a lot of those out there which we don't necessarily want to supplant the really large conch that reproduce. And so that, that's a lot of the complication. In, in, in essence, there's a huge variability in the size of the conch uh, based on mat maturity. Right, so I always like to tell people, and you can correct me if I've been saying the wrong thing for years, that you have to think of it as um, humans. You know, you have some children, they reach age five and they're one height, and then you have other children who can be significantly taller, but the same age. So I often try to give people that analogy just to give them like, that real like down to earth kind of perception of why it's the same conch, but it looks so different. Is that is that correct to say? Yes, that, that is the excellent comparison. That's <laughs> absolutely true. Thanks so much. And so I know um, the Bahamas has, for lack of a better word, subscribed to a lot of international agreements and, and policies and things of that sort. And one of them being the CITES Act, it's the act, correct? And that's the, Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species, Wildlife, Being Fauna and Flora. I think I jacked that name right up, so please correct me. <laughs> but very, can you very explain? close. <laughs> yeah, very close. And I think my lecturers would definitely kill me for messing that up. <laughs> but I know that the conch is on that list. So can you explain what that list is, correct the name, and then just tell us what are those implications for Bahamians? Yeah, so you're referring to the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species of fauna and flora, plants and animals. So it's actually a, a convention within the Bahamas, we have local legislation 
that we need in place to implement what's in the convention. And that's where the, what we colloquially refer to the CITES Act, but it's the Wildlife Protection and Trade Act. But on the CITES, the acronym for the convention, um, the Queen Conk is listed in Appendix 2. And that means that it has special protections. Countries can only export Queen Conk if the research shows that their fisheries can withstand that level of um, pressure. And that's what CITES more or less deals with. It deals with international trade and its impact on conservation. Now, there are like three different appendices. There's one, Appendix 3, where there's no harvest whatsoever allowed, only like research and the like. Then there's Appendix 2, but that the Queen Conk is on, where you can, you're allowed to harvest, but the, the harvest has to be justified. Then there's, sorry, Appendix 1 is there no harvest. Um, appendix 3 is where some countries find it difficult to manage resources on their own, so they list it on the appendix three to ask for assistance from other countries in protecting their um, CITES listed species. Right. I know the Bahamas um, is said to be the last stronghold for the Queen Conk, correct? Yes, that, that is so. Um, I mean, there was some promising results in the region in that Jamaica found a lot of Queen Conk in the 1990s. They did their very best to, to manage it. But unfortunately, I know within the last year or two, they were doing their surveys regularly and monitoring it. And they there was a huge decline in conch density. That's the number per unit area that concerns them. I know they were doing their very best, but that's not to say there aren't any conch there and that there aren't any conch in other parts of the Caribbean. There are certain, the Bahamas certainly has its problems as well. We have some areas that have adequate conch densities but we have many areas where the numbers are, are just too low, too low for the fishery to be sustainable. And I'm so happy you said that. That's one of the um, myths that I want to bust today. Like a lot of times people would say, you know, a quick solution for increasing our conch population would be, you know, find the male, find the female, put them somewhere and let them reproduce. That way, you know, they're sure they're doing it. Can you talk a bit about how that doesn't work and why? Yes. Um, well, what really happens is that Conch reproduction is limited. It has uh, what you call a mate finding elite effect in that you need to have enough males and enough females in close proximity in order for them to meet each other enough to mate. Once the densities get too low, I think the literature shows that around 50 per hectare is absolutely the minimum you should have. International uh, guidelines say you should thrive for no less than 100 per hectare. A hectare is 10 thousand square meters, if my, my math is correct. So you need about that density for them to uh, reproduce adequately. But in terms of them putting them together, that is being experimented on. I know Dr. Megan Davis, very recently she and one of her research students, Laura Isak, they've experimented with putting queen conch in a protected area at densities that mimic um, natural uh, natural um, abundances that, that you would need for reproduction. That had promising results, but so far other things like, for example, having a conch farm and using that to replenish conch, the evidence so far, the history of that over 20 years is that that doesn't seem to work very well, unfortunately. 
uh, in that it's very expensive and the conch, for whatever reason, that are produced in a farm setting, they, they just don't survive as well. They don't grow as well. So that is still something that, we, that should be investigated further. But as far as an immediate answer to restoring conch populations, I think our responses are to explore putting them in protected areas in the Bahamas and also putting management measures in place to make sure that if you're harvesting, that you're leaving enough of the adults in the different locations so that they have a chance to reproduce. I mean, it's just common sense at the end of the day, if you're just removing them at a rate faster than they can reproduce, the numbers are gonna decline. And that's what we've been seeing around the Bahamas. I know, and that was one of my favorite things to talk about um, when I would visit a lot of the different family islands is saying how, and to say it is PG-13, you know, conch like group reproduction, like you can't just, right. expect, <laughs> you can't just expect to have two conch or a couple of conch in, in that area be deemed as a high reproductive area. Um, I know that, and I think Eric might still be watching, the Exuma Keys Land and Sea Park managed by the Bahamas National Trust. Um, they, there was a paper that came out and I, I think you would know better. I, I don't want to misquote who the author is talking about how the conch in there are large enough and quote unquote dying of old age. Um, can you talk a little bit about how putting conch in these protected area, if there's any sort of like detrimental effects that we could see, or is it just all positive because you want them to be the big breeders as a lot of Bahamians like to say? I have not seen any detrimental effects. I would say that the Exuma Keys Land and Sea Park is achieving its purpose in that it has adult conch that are reproducing, but it highlights the complexity of the issue because very few juvenile conch are found in there. So wherever their larvae are going when they reproduce, that's wonderful. I think some of it's going to Long Island, if, if I recall some of the research papers and one or two other areas but they don't seem to be much larvae going in there. So that means their upstream source might be depleted. So you need to have multiple strongholds where there's adequate reproduction. It's not enough to have one protected area. And um, I know very recently at Kisal Bank, there was research by Andy Cow and one of his, his graduate students. They oh, found- I think was right. actually on one of those trips. <laughs> okay, wonderful, great to hear you were there. But they have found very large numbers, over 200 per hectare in a number of locations. And they found that based on the, the ocean current modeling, the larvae are going to Little Bahama Bank and Great Bahama Bank. And so we really, really should try to protect an area such as Kisal Bank. So it's not such a simple, method, simple issue. It's not as simple as having a size limit and closed season because the life cycle that I described earlier they, the larvae can float around for a number of weeks. The, where the land larvae actually end up could be quite different from where the adult population is. So we have to protect the adult populations because they'll be feeding a number of other areas. And even areas where you have juveniles, we have to put marriages in place to make sure they can attain a, a, an adult size as well. Yeah, that um, I think that was in like 2017, I was on the Shed Aquarium boat and we went to Kisal for about 12 days. And I was actually so amazed just to see the, I guess, the variations. There were some areas where there were very large conch. There were some areas where there were juvenile conch. We saw some areas that had some egg casings. And, and it was really nice to see that there are areas like that in the Bahamas. And I know that Kisal, it's on its way to protection or it should have been protected already. I'm not sure um, the status of it as I've been out of the conservation arena locally for a bit, but I know- okay. 
um, it's pending, I guess, like a management plan and all sorts of other things, but it's, it's in the works, right? Yes, it's a marine managed area now, and it's up for expansion as well. It's an area that will extend further eastward over a par portion of the, the deep water areas between the Great Bahama Bank and, and Kisal Bank. But because we found these such large numbers uh, um, on Kisal Bank, now we're, we're now strongly considering what additional measures we can utilize for there, whether we should continue to allow any harvests there whatsoever of Queen Kong, given that we know that the larvae end up in a number of places throughout the Bahamas. So we're exploring how we'll utilize that information to improve our, our fisheries management efforts. Definitely. And I know you talked a bit um, earlier about the whole um, closing the fisheries, like maybe even doing a conch season. And I, that's something that's actually been popping up Recently, um, when I started advertising this, I noticed there were a number of platforms talking about, you know, seeing all these people still taking juvenile conch out of the water and how conch season might be the best thing to do, like what we did with the Nassau grouper. Can you just share some thoughts? Do you think that that might be a potential solution or is it not worth the effort? I think it would help, but among the measures that we are exploring, I don't know that that one would necessarily be as effective as you might think in that the problem is you don't have enough adult conch in a number of locations. So having a closed season isn't going to necessarily enhance reproduction for the vast majority of the, the depleted locations. But if we can instead look at changing the size limit, instead of depending on the flare of the lip, where not all of the conch are mature, if you move to using a lip thickness law, where you have a better indication of the maturity of the conch, that would help to improve reproduction. So when you look at the purpose of a closed season, that's to improve reproduction. Changing a size limit does it in a different way. And so we're more inclined to utilize a lip thickness law instead of a closed season. Then any margin measures that would be implemented, you really have to consider the social implications. Not that they drive everything, but you really have to consider them. As it is, we have a closed season for lobster at the same time. A lot of fishermen turn away from, sorry, they, they switch to conch during the lobster closed season. And that's around the time when conch reproduction takes place as well. And so we don't, we don't necessarily desirous of having a closed season for conch and lobster at the same time. So if you can have the same effect of improving reproduction without a closed season, then I think that's something that we should explore. But Having a closed season isn't off the table. That's a concept Bahamians are very familiar with. They understand why you would need it, but I don't want us to make the mistake of thinking once you have that, that that solved the, solves the problem because it, it won't solve it on its own. Yeah, it's a, it's a complex issue. I think, like you said, it's definitely looking at what's best for the species. And I actually didn't know that Kunk's reproductive season was around the same time as crawfish because like you said, a lot of fishermen, they often turn to that um, in times of crawfish season. But I know I wanna also touch on really quickly, some other myths um, and fun facts, I guess, to bust. And I know okay. that the favorite meal, favorite dish, the iconic dish of the Bahamas is the conch salad. And okay. Bahamians have come up with interesting names and descriptions for the different parts. But the four key parts that I wanna to touch on that um, I want you to, I guess, give me the correct terminology, the correct part for would be, the first one being the bubby. Everyone always says, oh, you know, put the bubby in my conch salad, or some people say they don't eat the bubby. Can you say quickly for the people, what exactly is the bubby on the conch? 
Well, let me, before I answer, let me say I haven't eaten a conch salad for, since I was around 10, since I'm allergic to, to conch. Oh. But based on I what I recall and the, the little that I see, the, that appears to be the proboscis or snout. And sometimes even the eye stalks are, are in there as well. So the, those black <laughs> elongated things, those are not bobby, as we <laughs> say, they're not the conch's breasts as we say in the Bahamas, they're actually the eye stalks and the snout that right. the conch uses to feel around and find food and it uses the end of the snout. There's a radula in there they use to scrape algae and, and the like so they can eat. Yeah, that was actually another thing. I know someone had said they think that conch are scavengers like crustaceans. And I'm like, no, conch are actually vegetarians. They eat algae, correct? Right. So if you look through the literature, it's predominantly said that they're herbivores. They do eat algae and they eat epiphytes growing on seagrass and the like. But occasionally you will see that they are scavengers. And so it's still plant material. They won't be, I don't know if them eating any animal material. So I might describe them as a detritivore, but the vast majority of the literature would say that they are herbivores. Yeah. Definitely. Or like I said, vegetarian. Herbivore is definitely the technical right. phrase. Sorry, people. I'm actually a marine biologist. I don't just do this for fun or I do it for fun, but I know the technical terms. And just to jump back really quickly for people who are tuning in and didn't catch that, what I like to tell people is the bubby is actually you're eating the conch's face. And again, people assume that it's the conch's breast. No, they don't. They don't have those features. You're eating the face from the actual the conch bubby. I know the next one that people like to ask for is, oh, you know, put that skin on the conch to be that pinkish spotted piece of the conch. And the correct right. part is? The mantle. Yes. That mantle. And that part is what actually um, secretes the shell. So throughout the conch's life, it keeps producing more and more mantle as the conch grows. And at some point in its development, it starts to, uh, the lip starts to flare. That's because the mantle starts to lay it down in such a way that the flare, the lip starts to turn outward. And I, I forgot to mention earlier too, that once they reach maturity, um, the shell no longer doesn't get any larger. Um, it just gets thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker. So it actually stops growing in terms of size. The shell gets thicker and the meat itself actually starts to shrink somewhat. So you can't go by the size of the meat of the conch to determine maturity. That just makes it more complicated for us managers, including yourself still, to, to, to figure out how we're going to manage this, this, fish, this um, fishery. Oh, wow. I had no idea because, so, there's, so basically the conch does reach this terminal size or how I was talking about earlier with people and their heights. So they reach this terminal size, but they continue to get thicker as right. their meat gets smaller, which is... Very interesting because I've often seen, you know, bigger conch with very thick shells and you're like, why is the conch inside of it so small? But that's right. so interesting. Do you think, and this is me being very theoretical or hypothetical that eventually the conch would just get so small that it would stop growing the shell or getting thicker? Not, we have, there's no indication that the shell would stop thickening. So as far as we know, it continues to thicken throughout its life, which can be up to 30 years. And some literature will say 20 years at maximum, but 20 to 30 years, the shell gets thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker. But the meat 
would begin to shrink and the proportion of their body that goes towards reproduction, even among the remaining meat, it, it actually increases as well. So I become more and more re reproductive organ, so to speak. If you follow what I'm saying, their body proportions change <laughs> throughout their lifetime. Imagine if that happened with people. I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to see happy. that. <laughs> Wow, that's very interesting. Uh, I'm learning so much. That's crazy. So for those that didn't catch that, as conch grow, their shell gets thicker, their meat gets smaller, but their reproductive organs get more reproductive. I think that's the safest way to say that. Um, that's it. <laughs> um, so the next part um, of the conch, we have two more, the pistol. It's that clear jelly-like piece that people like to slurp up and they actually say, it's very good for men to eat this because it's an aphrodisiac and it makes them stronger. What part of the conch is that? That's what we call the style or sometimes referred to as the crystalline style. And um, it's found along the digestive tract. We don't know what role it really plays in digestion for the conch yet. It might even help us for all we know, but I, I know persons have investigated over the years. It doesn't seem to cause any harm in humans. People certainly enjoy it and why not? market it uh, as something as an aphrodisiac if you want persons to buy it all the way right now you're hoping for pressure on conch stocks to to be reduced but nonetheless that's just the way it is definitely um, and the last one being the foot of the conch so we have that hard piece almost i want to say it's almost like a, like your nails kind of i think is that is it made out of the same material right so what is the correct term for the foot of the conch well, the, that nail part is actually the operculum and that hangs off the end of the foot. So the perculum is more or less used to cover the shell, cover the conch when it's retracted into the shell. And the foot is used to kind of hop along. Imagine if you had one leg and each time you want to move, you have to use that one leg to lift your entire body up, up. you fall back down, then you have to lift it up again to kind of move along like that. And that's part of the problem with why their reproduction is so limited. They're not very mobile whatsoever. It's harder for them to find mates. So you have to have this critical amount for them to meet each other often enough, the males and females to reproduce. Definitely. Um, right, so that, that concludes that piece of the conch body parts. And I don't think I see anyone asking any questions about that. Um, but awesome. So the next thing I want to talk about is this whole concept of, no, actually, sorry, before I touch on that, you talked about how the conch is so strong as if, you know, there's one leg, you're hopping on it. As someone once said to me, you know, if you're strong enough, you could potentially pull this conch out of its shell. Can you explain how that may or may not be correct and why people tend to, the method that they use to get the conch out? Yes, at the, the very, I'm not to describe it, in the shell, they actually hold on at the very base near the tip of the spire, that's the pointy part. And in order for the conch to be extracted, unless you're like a, a nurse shark or something that can use powerful suction, yeah, I don't know of any person who can pull a live conch out by hand. So you have to break it out from the, at the base where it's holding on to in the shell, and then you can pull it out. And if you do encounter a shell, dark side, and it's able to be pulled out like that, then that, that's an indication that the conch is already dead. If there's no hole, the fisherman hasn't broken it out, so the eye able to pull it out, it's already dead or extremely weakened at that point. I feel like that could be a potential Bahamian sport maybe for conch 
Ballot guys, seeing who's the strongest by who can <laughs> actually do that before you know you crack it out. And we have someone in the comments, Megan Hodgkins. Uh, the crystalline style helps with grinding the algae they eat, like a mortar and pestle, helps with enzymes too for digestion. Yes, very. Yeah, thank you, Megan. Thank you, Megan. <laughs> awesome. And so another thing that people um, don't really know about conch, uh, what I was going to touch on next would be this whole concept of one dead conch, you know, you, you take the conch out of the shell and you throw that shell back in the water. There's this rumor, you know, that this dead conch causes other live conch to scatter. Um, and we tend to put conch in middens. Can you just briefly talk about, is there any truth behind that and what the purpose of middens um, are or what middens are, sorry. Okay, a, a midden is more or less a conch pile. That's where fishermen, when they come to shore, they break out the, the meat and they throw the shells on a pile. And over the months and years, you have a huge pile of, of dead shells. Or even if they do that at sea, they're still a midden. If you anywhere, it's more or less a, a conch shell, a conch graveyard. But the jury is still out on whether conch actually leave because there's a, a empty shell there. We've seen in other organisms, for example, spiny lobsters, if there's an injured animal, there's been trials that show that the healthy animal will avoid an injured animal. So it's not impossible that it actually happens. I just don't know of any concrete evidence as yet. I think it is being investigated. It might be some of the Cape Luthero investigating whether that effect is true. But what I found in my work is that throughout the Caribbean, a lot of fishermen swear by this as well, that conch will actually leave an area if you discard shells there. I've also said, also heard a lot of fishermen say otherwise, and scientists, they see many dead shells. Sorry, not dead shells, of course, the shell is dead, but they see empty shells, and they um, um, oftentimes will still see conch around. So, I mean, it's worth investigating, but as it is now, the Department of Marine Resources is exploring compelling fishermen to bring the shell to shore as it is. And so the reason for that is that we want to improve the chances of our officers evaluating the maturity of the conch or whether it's of legal size before it's dis discarded. So that's a major loophole in our laws. Even if we don't change the lip thickness of 15 millimeters, if we continue to use the flare of the lip, we can still improve enforcement around that by um, making sure that the fishermen bring the shell to shore. I mean, to me, it almost seems like common sense that if a fisherman wants to harvest a juvenile conch, that um, if they, sorry, if a fisherman wants to harvest a juvenile conch, they could remove the meat, leave the shell at sea. We aren't, don't have enough officers and vessels. And so you could end up with um, fishermen harvesting juvenile conch. And so that, that is one of the measures where the department is considering implementing, making sure fishermen bring conch in or land the conch in the shell so our officers will have more of a chance to measure them or examine them. And then on top of it, they're considering implementing a lip thickness law among other measures. Yeah, I think, because um, I know oftentimes when you talk about changing anything in the system, Bahamians are very, very resistant. But I think one thing to point out is that this can also help us, you know, gather proper data on the types of, um, not the types of, on the conch that are coming in so that we're more aware, like, you know, of 
of what the fisheries is, I think oftentimes when people decide to go out to sea and, and they do leave the shells there, it robs us of that opportunity to better study the conch. Um, and we do have a question. Um, and I was going to save Q&A for the end, but I think it's, it's helpful to ask the questions as they are, the topics are relevant. Okay. From Eric Carey. <laughs> mm -hmm. He says, very informative. Question for Doc. What is the status of the management prescription slash recommendation submitted to the ministry some time ago? Yes, well, during the minister's budget contribution, I think he made a clear indication that we're intending to move ahead with those uh, management measures. Um, I think the timeline is still up for debate, and it's actually complicated by COVID-19 and priorities uh, and the like. But um, the department is still committed. The, I think the ministry and the government is still committed to going ahead with those. The timeline is what I am uh, uncertain about. Definitely. No worries. Um, so we have Lawrence Jeff, that's my brother, tuning in from China. Okay. He's asking about different kinds of conch in the Bahamas or the world. Um, so I think a, a better way to just quickly do that question. How many species of conch are there in the Bahamas? And I know I've encountered about two or three, the milk conch, queen conch, and the tulip conch, but about how many species do you think we can find in the Bahamas? Uh, you put me on the spot there. I, I just don't recall off the top of my head. I, I believe there are up to nine in the region. And I've actually seen some conch at some, in some really deep waters. Maybe doing some exploratory fishing at 3,000 feet. So um, I am unable to say, but I would say um, up to nine, uh, possibly as little as five species. I don't think there are any less than five species. I just don't know them off the top of my head like that. Yeah, no worries. I, that question, I wouldn't have known the answer either. Um, someone, Jasmine Rain is asking, what are some of the signs fishermen can look for to know if a conch is bad? Um, I'm guessing maybe sick or unhealthy. Is, are there any studies about that? Not <laughs> more or less that. I mean, I mean, after it's all, already harvested and you have a dock side, if you can just pull the, the meat out easily, that's not a good sign. Mm -hmm. Or if they've had it, that's a, among the signs. And also, if you as a consumer as well, I mean, uh, I think a, a bigger issue is uh, eating conch that doesn't have conch poisoning. I know last year or the year before, there was a huge outbreak of conch poisoning due to Vibrio parahemolyticus, that's a, a type of bacteria. And when you wash the conch in salt water, and not fresh water, there's a much higher chance that it um, has conch poisoning. And so, or it could poison you. So, I mean, once there's good hygiene, they wash it in fresh water, they observe hygiene practices, then the fishermen themselves, the public as well, then it should be safe to eat. But as things go, there are ecological fluctuations. Sometimes you have an outbreak in the environment of Vibrio and that can cause conch poisoning. And that's actually the same bacteria that's found throughout the world that's implicated in seafood poisonings around the world. But we just call it uh, conch poisoning in the Bahamas. It's the same seafood poisoning that takes place in many places around the world. Right. So, and I know some people are a bit shocked about the conch poisoning. You said that is from a bacteria if the conch is not washed correctly in fresh water, correct? Yes, that's right. So this particular genus, the Vibrio, there are like 65 species. The Parahemolyticus is the one that's responsible for seafood poisoning. There are others, but most of them in that genus, the 65, around five cause problems. Um, there's one that causes cholera, 
This one causes flesh eating, that is flesh eating bacteria and conch poisoning or seafood poisoning is uh, among those that are problematic. And uh, as I said, you really should just make sure the conch is washed in, in fresh water at minimum before you um, consume it. Definitely. And I know um, Megan Hodgkins again for strombus species, the queen milk, fighting conch, rooster tail and hawk wing. Those are some of the species that she listed. I'm guessing she means that are that are found in the Bahamas. Yes. Uh, so thank you again, Megan. Very helpful. I feel like I you recognize- You want to come work for us, Megan? <laughs> right. You can come on down to the Bahamas and help us out. Uh, so we also, one of the things that I think a lot of people were shocked to know is that this, the conch make this substance that Bahamians like to call lime, which was actually used back in the day to create houses. Can you just tell them what lime actually is? Well, the studies on the conch shell have shown that the conch shell is predominantly aragonite. And there have been studies done on various mechanical characteristics of it. The studies, some of them were done in China, as a matter of fact. And what they found is that the conch shell is very good for um, preventing cracks. So when you're mixing concrete or cement, whatever the case is, you add that, you put that in as an additive. When the concrete starts to crack, it stops it from running. That's what you hope for in construction. You want some additives in there that prevent cracks from running and the complete, um, I guess, loss of the physical integrity. So that's what the conch shell is for, or can be used for in construction purposes. And there is an indication that there's an interest here in the Bahamas. I, I know a local company actually sells local, sorry, tumbled conch shells. There's an interest internationally as well. There are some places that want to purchase the conch shell for construction purposes mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, and and so yeah, so Megan Hodgkin is Megan Davis. So yes, we oh, did. Oh, there you go. <laughs> right. We do know her. Thank you, Megan. Thanks for clearing that up because I was I was like you you look familiar. Um, awesome. So I know speaking about that one, it seems like we as Bahamians should really start to utilize the conch for more than just its meat. Um, and with that being said, you know a lot of times people don't realize that conch actually create conch pearls. And a fun fact that I learned from Lindy Knowles, um, which probably everyone knows who Lindy Knowles is, is that the, the king and queen of England's crown has conch pearls on the top. So have you encountered conch pearls in any of your research or studies? Yes, I have. I was doing a research project right at Potosky and we came across a really tiny conch pearl and there were some local buyers and persons who gathered the pearls for export. I know they are valuable as well. And I know there's been research on getting them to, for, to gain the conch to produce them as well. Just like other places you sort of get oysters to produce pearls. Uh, the first you can do the same thing with conch as well. And yes, yeah, so they are valuable and, and that they're not very abundant. It's very rare to find them. But when you find them, I mean, they're certainly worth trying to, to make some money off. It. Definitely. I know it seems like there are a lot of things like the conch farming. It seems like it's a definitely important to make sure that whatever you do, you can really get that return on investment. And I'm sure somebody who I know watching who studies economics and finance would be able to correct me on that. But I know that was also one of the things that people said, oh, conch farming could potentially work, but it's so much investment and it takes forever for you to actually get that return on investment. And so it probably would be the same thing with conch pearls if you wanna just try to find them, you know, it's, it's so rare. Um, right. I remember 
I worked in a jewelry store fresh out of high school, my first year in UB. And a fisherman actually came in to the jewelry store with a conch pearl, maybe, I want to say maybe a half a penny size. And it was so wow. beautiful. Yeah, that was my first time ever seeing it. And he was trying to sell it for, I can't even remember what the amount was. I just remember the store owner was like, definitely not. But I was shocked. That was my first instance of ever seeing a uh, conch pearl. And you speaking about actually the oyster pearl industry, one of my cohort members, uh, she's from the Cook Island. She actually worked for about a year as a pearl biologist where they, you know, they seed the oysters and they get these pearls. Do you think that it is something, you said there's studies happening now to see if that's an industry? I knew up to a few years ago, there were some studies and there was some progress. And some of that is complicated by the availability of, of the conch as well. I mean, if they're rare, then that's a problem. It might actually be able to, to use that as a strategy to conserve them. You protect them to allow them to produce the pearls. But it really, has, as you touched on, it has to be cost effective. So if you can get enough in order for that to maintain such a business, then, then certainly. Maybe the rarity as well can drive up the, the price. Exactly. So I think it's worth continuing to explore. And just really quickly, if you can, I think I kind of know how they're made. Do you, can you possibly share quickly how pearls are made in the Concord oyster, which of course would be very similar? Well, uh, I know in the oyster, they would take a piece of the shell and implant it in, I think it's a long, somewhere along, I think they have a mantle or an equivalent in the oyster. And then it lays down layers of pearl-like material over it. And that's how you get the, the pearl. Now, uh, the conch as well, and um, the one person who's done research on it, they shared with me how they did it. And it's actually proprietary. So uh, unfortunately, I wouldn't want to divulge that right now, but okay. I can put you in contact with them afterwards. We really want to find out more, but I, I believe it's a similar type of process. It's not as easy as it sounds, but it, it can be done. Well, I've, I've heard of a potential way. Can I, you think I should say what I think I know? Well, that... if you, you've heard it, no one's divulged yeah. any secrets that you knowingly are sharing. <laughs> the secrets, yeah. But I've heard that similar to the oyster, you, you take, like a grain of sand gets caught under the mantle and just how the shell is formed with the mantle it, it kind of rolls that discomfort from that sand into this smooth pearl and I've actually I don't remember where I heard this but someone said you can kind of think of it as if someone was to put a grain of sand in your gum the enamel from your tooth would kind of work on that now I don't know if we want to start doing enamel studies on creating human pearls but that was that was what I heard and I always thought that was very interesting because the conch Pearl is that same pink color that you see probably in this picture behind me right. and you know that same nice pink and it comes in the various shades so that's super interesting and um, I know Bahamians are very creative I've seen people use different parts of the conch to create earrings um, you can what else can you make gosh I feel like I've lost my train of thought with that but there are other things that you can do with the conch and I know as I was saying earlier you know the conch is very iconic to the point where we have we call some people Kunky Joes. We have um, in Florida, apparently the Kunk, what is the Kunk Republic of the world was because Bahamians were actually there working with Kunk. And something that I think would be really important to touch on would be, what are some of the effects of climate change on Kunk? Like we see, we're trying to get a handle on the industry for fisheries. We see Florida as an example of when you over harvest, but now there's this new challenge with climate change into effect. 
Yeah, so when you look at the effects of climate change, that's altered sea surface temperatures that will be expected to increase drastically by 2100 and then also increased ocean acidity. So based on the temperature effects, um, that, could, uh, that could affect how long the conch larvae remain as larvae or when they settle. So they could have either prolonged larval duration or they don't settle as quickly as they should. It can also affect their um, growth rates because temperature affects growth rates. It might affect the availability of their, their food sources as well. Uh, in terms of ocean acidity, now you can have a, a decreased pH because of higher carbon dioxide, dissolved carbon dioxide levels in, in the water. And that can make it much harder for the conch to form its shell. And that can, uh, by extension, lead to more energy growing, going into growing the shell, or it could lead to thinner shells. So, I mean, it's postulated that these things can happen. And so, I mean, the effects can potentially be very dire for the queen conch. We also do know as well that one of the habitats where you find a conch that's the seagrass, it actually can mitigate the effects of ocean acidification. Apparently, the seagrass um, photosynthesizes at such a rate that there's a local augmentation of the ocean um, acidity or ocean chemistry. So in the very vicinity of the seagrass, if you have enough seagrass, which is among their favorite habitats, then that can mitigate their, their um, effects due to ocean acidification. But I guess the larvae would still be susceptible to ocean acidification uh, and the like. So it's a complicated issue, but at the end of the day, we don't expect it to be beneficial to the conch, uh, these changes that are expected with climate change. Definitely. I know, I'm happy that you touched on seagrass because I know a lot of Bahamians, the ones that actually do get into the water to swim, they always say, oh, I'll swim anywhere in our beautiful clear waters except over those dark patches, which is oftentimes that seagrass. And, and I think that people don't understand how important they are. You know, they're a habitat for a lot of other species. And, and you just even pointing out that significance for conch and mitigating that climate change effect is so important. Well, the ocean acidification. Um, so something else that I also wanted to talk about really quickly would be, because I see we're almost out of time and I know that the prime minister is making an announcement and you and I and many viewers want to catch that. Right. What would be some of your personal um, recommendations or personal professional to the average Bahamian? Like what can the average Bahamian do to help conk for years to come? How can we? I think if they make an effort or make sure they find out what the fisheries laws are where they don't know them and also just obey them. A lot of the laws we have in place, they're designed not just to stop them from harvesting or eating the conch, it's really to allow us to utilize those resources sustainably. So whatever fisheries resource it is, if it's the closed season, don't be tempted to buy closed season resources. That will remove the market for the fishermen who want to sell during the closed season. Although I know a lot of fishermen when think of utilizing, sorry, fishing during the closed season. There's a size limit, obey the size limit. So I would say just obey the rules and regulations that we have in place. And at, at the end of the day, it's to your benefit. We don't want to just harvest our resources for today. We need to utilize them today to feed ourselves. But what happens next year? What happens in 15 years, as is predicted, the conch could disappear in 15 years. 
So just obey the laws uh, and the like. If you want to understand why they're in place, that's fine. You can ask, but don't assume or because you don't understand why or you're just trying to stop fishermen and all of those stuff. I mean, I, I, I would say obey the laws that we have in place. Definitely. And I know um, I've heard of an ideal conch alternative because I know maybe even consuming less conch is important as well of the fabled oyster mushroom. And I've actually just recently seen videos of that being used as a vegan alternative for fried chicken. I've heard that you can make this oyster mushroom similar to how you would put conch in a conch salad and that actually gives the same texture and taste for anyone out there, any chefs or people test the theory, send me some maybe. Um, but we do have a question. Um, how does a conch defend itself from predators? Well, it's the defense is really its shell and it just retracts it into the shell. Mm -hmm. So that's for the adult ones. Then there are some predators who are, who are adapted to still extracting the, the conch, like the loggerhead turtles and the nurse sharks and the like. And for the juveniles, they more or less bury themselves. Um, the juveniles have a very high mortality. Even spiny lobsters eat them when they're small, oh, wow. thinner shell and the like. So their defense really is to seek cover bury themselves and the like. But as far as fighting, I, I don't know of them, Queen Kong being able to fight it in any way. They just hide. Well, I've encountered some very feisty Queen Kong that will take their operculum and literally stab you in the hand. Like you have to hold them in such a way so that they don't reach around, you know, and as, like jick you in your hand. So mm -hmm. I would imagine that they only do that with humans. They wouldn't try that with a nurse shark or, or any other animal. Uh, so it doesn't seem any questions are coming in now, but before we close, I know we're in the season of coronavirus and I've been seeing a lot of papers that are discussing in regards to conservation, negative and positive effects. Do you think that there are any effects from this virus on the conch? Like are people not going out as much? Like obviously you would be best suited for that. Like have numbers been changing? Are fishermen still going for conch? What, what do you think some of the implications of this virus have been maybe for the conch or any of our fisheries? Yeah, I haven't seen any data since the um, lockdowns and the like have started, but I know there's been much less fishing taking place. So I would imagine there'd be much less pressure on the conch. And I know the, the ministry is interested in allowing fishermen to at least harvest food for subsistence. And that's yet another reason why we need to protect the queen conch. Around New Providence, we know, for example, it's depleted around many population centers. The conch numbers are depleted. And so if for any other reason that we wanted to be there for times like this, that we should we need to make sure we protect the queen conch. That's how Bahamian fisheries are being looked at. That is something you can fall back on as a profession and also for subsistence. But around population centers is where we see the highest depletion. So this is a major motivation to have protected areas where some where you allow subsistence fishing and a major reason to protect our resources and use them sustainably. We don't know what the future holds. So we need to protect our resources for many reasons we might even think of. Right, and, and now that you said it, it reminds me, you know, a lot of Bahamians are very adamant about saying that the best way to start protecting conch would be to stop the export. But if I remember correctly, um, in regards to the conch consumption, it's a higher percentage in the Bahamas, correct? Or am I mistaken? Yes. Uh, I the amount, the percentage that is exported has fluctuated. I don't want to call up the number off the top of my head, but I would say maybe around 20%, as little as 10% in some years, somewhere in that, that neighborhood. 
But the issue with exports is that under CITES, you're obligated to stop exports or not have exports if your resources cannot sustain it. And then as well, when you have so many different pressures, um, you have to export, you have local consumption, and you cannot allow both to go on continually. So we have to decide as a country, do we prefer to have this available for us to utilize and eat locally? as it's been done culturally, it's been, conch has actually been harvested in the Bahamas for thousands of years. Even before Columbus, there were people eating a ton of conch. So I would venture to say that it would be better for us to have it preserved for as much local consumption as possible. But nonetheless, we do have a need to uh, obtain foreign exchange. So my opinion is that it would be better to have local consumption favor local consumption over exports, but that's open for, for debate. But reducing or eliminating exports would still have a positive effect on our resource. That pressure would be greatly reduced. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm not on the fence. And now that I'm a quote unquote free agent, <laughs> I can say, I, I personally believe, yeah, you should leave the Bahamas, um, leave the Queen Conk to be something that's iconic to the Bahamas. If people want Conk, they should come here and get it. Um, and although that's only 20%, you know, it's still to me something that can, you know, given that tourism is our number one market, which I'm also on the fence about, I think it's important that we keep things for ourselves. And just while we talk about that, the last point, because I know now it's time to close for the announcement, what percentage of um, spiny lobster is exported in comparison to what we consume here locally? It varies from year to year, as little, I wouldn't say as little, but 90% to upwards of 96%. When you look at the records that we capture, around 90%, I would say, is exported. And I think that's advantageous in that we have a high-quality product, excellent market penetration, especially since we have Marine Stewardship Council certification. We get top dollar, high-quality product. It brings some serious foreign exchange into the country. So hey. most of it is exported and it, it is a sustainable fishery. Right, because I think I've even seen there's like fishermen in Spanish wells that supply for red lobster, if I'm not yes, mistaken. That's right. They have a long relationship with them. Yeah, and I think it's crazy. Bahamians go to Florida for red lobster when it's you know coming right from home. That's right. Yeah, but I just want to say thank you so much. We don't seem to have any more questions coming in. Dr. Lester Giddens, it's a pleasure once again. I always enjoy conversations with you. I wish we had them more when I was in town. Um, do you have any final thoughts maybe before we close out? I would just wish everyone all the best and obey our fisheries laws. And when we have meetings to ask your opinions on what management measures, feel free to weigh in. We really, really and truly consider your opinions on what measures should be implemented. So thank you very much for having me. I wish everyone all the best. Stay safe. Yeah, and I also, I want to, you know, put some backing behind that. In my work in an NGO, the government of the Bahamas does seriously take into account what the people say. Oftentimes things can't get done, changes cannot be made if the people are not in agreement with it. So your voice counts, everyone. You know, it's, it's important to attend these meetings and to respect the laws. And as I closed out on my last episode, I'll do it again. The Bahamas is a country that is not separated by water, but is connected by it. So stay safe, Bahamians. Tune in next time for Siren Sundays.